PV, my brother. My man, Anthony, how are you? Oh, fuck. <laughs> it's been so, a while since yeah, I did so it. So I was, I was talking these. to Santana on the way here, my yeah. assistant, and, yeah. uh, and I was like, she's like, are you nervous or whatever? And I was like, actually, the, if there's one person that I'm not nervous to do a podcast <laughs> with, it's PV, because yeah. you've been on one by yourself, mm-hmm. one with Emma, yeah, yeah. and one with you and Mitt. Yeah, this is actually yeah, our yeah. fourth episode. Right, together. right, right. I forget the online ones. Yes. Yeah. I, like, I remember it was such a. Yeah, the online ones are the differences. When I came in, in person. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, we've only actually ever done one in person. Mm-hmm. That was the one at Soho Innovation Lab with right. me, you, and Emma. My, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool, man. I'm glad to be back. I was just thinking, too, like, it's been a while since I did a podcast or, you know, even before I would always go on right, and do right. like Zoom presentations or Zoom podcasts and stuff like that. So it's the first one after a while. I'm yeah. glad it's with you, you know. And actually, um, I haven't filmed a podcast. When was the last time you filmed a podcast? Ah, uh, sometime in the pandemic. And it just would have been virtual. I virtual, say like right? tw- or late 2020. So the last time I filmed a podcast was mm-hmm. my 35th episode. It was yeah. in the fall of November 2020. I think right, It was right. November. Okay. Or October, and uh, so it's been fucking two years. Yeah. And it was with Brad Poulios, who's like a professor uh, of entrepreneurship at uh, U of T, and it was Mm -hmm. virtual. Right. And then what happened was, is like, in the new year, we were going to film season five, and I was like, I I hate virtual podcasts. Like, the vibes are just not the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, uh, so then it, I was it like, it really okay. isn't. It feels more like an interview versus. Yeah, yeah it sucks. Know, the it best sucks. part of this is like it feels like a casual conversation. We're here. It's like we're having drinks. Stuff. We're having dinner. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. And then, so, so then I was like, okay, let's just anyone. I'm only going to take on people that are in person, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then, uh, so then I was looking for virtual for like in person spots in yeah. Toronto, and yeah. there were zero. This yeah. was in April of 2021. Yeah. There were zero places to host a podcast oh, in shit. person in Toronto. Yeah. Unless you went to like one of those music uh, studios mm-hmm. and we went to one, me and Kieran. Yeah. And it was all just like, it looked like it was from like the 1990s. Like the walls smelt like cigarettes and like stuff like that. Old school. Old school. <laughs> it was like a guy with a big beard and long hair yeah. who looked like he just loved the 90s too much. Yeah. Now he's got leather skin. <laughs> yeah. You know? And, oh, and then man. that's when the idea of Crater Club first started, May of 2021, which was when we were like, okay, if there's no podcast studio, yeah. I said to Kieran, I'm like, halt all podcasts yeah. going forward. We're going to start a fucking podcast studio. Man. And that was in like May, in the summer, we were looking for places. Mm-hmm. I pitched Anthony Lacavera on the idea. I've told you about him. Yep. He kind of liked it. He was like, well, I got an office space. Gave us a little bit of money. We did this, yeah. right? That was that was fall of 2021, right? Um, and then we played with the idea for a while, got it set up. That took like six, seven months. Then it yeah. was open. Like, think about it. That was like a year ago, Crazy, right? Yeah. And now, finally, fucking a year ago, or okay, maybe ten months, whatever. Now our first podcast. That's amazing, man. And it's also a classic entrepreneur's story. And then story. I was like, it is. I love that. Thank found you. Found a need and, and took care of it. Solved yeah. the problem. Agreed. And so then I was like, we were like, okay, who's going to be the first guest? Yeah. And boom, without a thought, I was like, PV, of course. <laughs> I appreciate to it. Go for, to I'm go honored. full circle, right? Yeah. Okay. Very so cool. why don't we get started? Yeah. Let's do this. We good to go? We're good to go. Maybe just intro him and stuff. Are we recording? Yeah. We're good. good. Okay. 
All right. So this is episode 36. Sir. First episode of season five. Okay. Give me a little bit of this. All right. Let's go. Let's do this. Get the vibes going. (laughs) Hello, hello, hello. And welcome to this week's episode of What They Did Not Teach You in School. This is actually episode 36 of the podcast. And the first actual episode of season five. And when we were deciding on who to bring on the podcast, I thought, who is the person who's like the one I look forward to the most when interviewing or having on the the show? And the person who spits the most wisdom and facts? PV. So here we got Pearsanth Fartharajan. How did I do? Yes, sir. You nailed it, man. I did nail it. That was like my Italian way of (laughs) saying it. So I hope it rolled off the tongue. It was like Baratharajan. Yes, sir. And uh, he's well known on Instagram. He's a CPA, also a big uh, real estate investor and just fellow wise investor. So um, welcome, PV. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Anthony, my man. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. And uh, before before we get started, I just want to say a word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Creator Club Studios, a marketplace and platform that connects content creators and brands in order to tell their story. I want to thank them very much for blessing us with this space and very grateful for the people behind the camera right now, Jesse and our producer extraordinaire, Valentina. They put this all together today, so thank you very much. Amazing. Okay, so PV, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself because like... You're an accountant by trade, mm-hmm. or like uh, uh, you ran an accounting practice, you got into real estate investing. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the people that haven't heard you so far, yeah. how you've gotten into this room today with me, looking so good. Right. Appreciate uh, it. Post-pandemic. <laughs> yeah, for sure, Anthony. So, you know, my name is Pierre Santh. I go by PV. I'm a real estate investor, chartered professional accountant, and a real estate agent as well. So uh, initially started off though going down the traditional route, went to school for a number of years, got my CPA designation, worked at an accounting firm. Eventually, uh, you know, being someone that's very entrepreneurial since a young age, went off to start my own firm with a good partner of mine, Mitt. We uh, worked with the, we worked on our firm for many years, and while we were doing that, got into real estate investing. Who didn't? It's the GTA. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the real thing that um, w- kind of led me there was I'm working all these crazy hours at PwC. How do I make some real money, and how do I generate wealth? And that's how I you know just even doing some Google searches and what's the best way to do this came across real estate investing as a way to do that. You know, we'll get more into that later on. But uh, currently, um, I, me and my partners, we have an organization called Foundation Capital Holdings, where we invest in large multifamily real estate buildings and uh, utilize the power of leverage to generate strong returns. I love what you guys are doing at Foundation because you guys are all young guys, millennials. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's usually dominated by uh, like older generation, the mm-hmm. boomers. So... I really love seeing that, right? <laughs> Taking on the boomers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right? It is dominated. Like the REIT game, mm-hmm. the private equity game in real estate is majorly, like majorly old people. Right, right. Right? So oh, what kind of gave you the kahunas in order to get into that? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was very much 
a process, Anthony. You know, we started with investing in single-family homes, duplexes, triplexes, right. and you know, as those projects started to work out, and we were seeing the potential uh, real estate had in terms of generating wealth and accelerating our income horizon. Uh, very quickly, we looked at what the next big step would be, which would be the multifamily space doing the same thing, but on a much larger scale. Right. And, you know, instead of managing one unit, two unit, three units at all these separate things, why not just shove 50 units under one roof? And fundamentally, the model is very much the same. And, you know, it's going to be on a bigger scale. Let's use this as a way to scale our portfolio, find out the nuances associated with this, and really double down on that. What gave us the cojones? I don't really have an answer for you. I think we were all, the three partners, we're all just someone who are comfortable with risk, assuming we've ran our numbers, we've done our due diligence, and sometimes you just have to go for it, right? You know, maybe not take on a 50 unit as your first project, but, you know, start with a 10 unit, see how it goes. There's obviously going to be hiccups and mistakes along the way as long as you're learning from them and uh, using it in your future projects, you know, the sky can be the limit. I love that. Beautiful. We'll talk, definitely talk about that more mm -hmm. in a bit. Um, before we get into it, I want to kind of kick off the podcast by talking about um, something that you see, you can't avoid, whether you're on Instagram, going to the grocery store at the corner, pumping your gas, um, the seeing your electricity bill at the end of every single yeah. month, inflation. Yeah. And uh, the Bank of Canada just increased interest rates again yesterday. And it's just like, well, if everything is going up with prices, mm -hmm. like the price of cost of goods and whatnot, right? Why would the government make it that much harder by increasing interest rates on us? That's a lot of the questions that we're getting. Why don't right. we start off by talking about um, why, what caused the inflation and... Um, then what? It, why is the government increasing interest rates second, in right. your opinion? Yeah, for sure. I think one of the big things that caused inflation was, you know, the start of the, the pandemic started to happen. During that period, one of the first, uh, I guess, response actions the government took was to significantly decrease interest rates, making it very cheap for companies and individuals to borrow money. That, along with all the money that was printed during the, during the pandemic in order to help lend out that additional cash. So when you combine those two things, the goal was, okay, you know, businesses are going to be struggling. People are going to be struggling. Let's offer them the opportunity to borrow money at very cheap rates, and they can utilize that money to keep the business going or to uh, make sure they can keep paying their employees and not right. go under while their sources of revenue was essentially cut off for a lot of businesses as they couldn't operate. What ultimately ended up happening was, you know, people and businesses had access to all this cheap debt and went ahead and started using it in, uh, I don't want to use the word crazy, but, you know, shoving it into assets, pumping it into different types of equities and all that money now going into various asset classes started to pump up the value of these things and increase spending in a, in a lot of ways. And I think that is what essentially inflated a lot of asset values, inflated a lot of spending, and there's a lot of money being pumped into the market and being used by consumers is, uh, is how I see it, the problem initially starting. Now the government has stepped in and, and after seeing these inflation rates right. and has raised the interest rates to now make it more expensive for people to borrow and hence now, since money is more expensive to borrow and they have a lot of companies and industries and even individuals are over leveraged from borrowing all of that debt, now there's 
a lot less disposable income that they have available to spend. And slowly, that's how they're planning to curb the inflation. Hopefully. And to tra- traditionally con- speaking yeah, and theoretically, that is what's going to happen. Right. And there was such a big extreme to like the economy practically shutting down, right? Which they had to reduce interest rates so extremely mm-hmm. that now we're kind of making up for that yeah. years later by an extreme increase in interest rates. Um, you know, there was the whole, uh, you talk about extreme, uh, or weird ways of people spending money. Jesse probably knows his boys were, uh, spending a lot of money at the club. Serb bottles yeah. was a thing. <laughs> You've heard of this, right? Serb Valentina, bottles. Serb bottles, all, all the, right. all the people going to the clubs, yeah. popping bottles on Justin Trudeau's monetary policy. Yeah, yeah. That was a wow. thing, right? Yeah. And now the opposite's going to happen now. Mm-hmm. Man. People are probably just going to be buying water bottles at the clubs yeah. for the next little while, right? <laughs> or, you know, a lot of people may not be going to the clubs, but, <laughs> you know, whether they make that kind of decision is a whole other conversation. <laughs> but, so what, yeah. are you, what are you looking at right now in regards to where uh, the economy is going to go in 2023? Mm-hmm. I know we don't have a crystal ball. I say that all the time. But um, right now, a lot of people are kind of tightening up the belt, pulling up the socks, pulling back on certain things, mm-hmm. analyzing their, uh, their month-over-month P&Ls and saying what is truly necessary right. and how can we pull back? Is that the necessary mindset that you think people should be having going into 2023? What's your thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, I think people should have kind of what I would call the combined approach. So definitely look at your finances, make sure that you're going to be in an okay place to prepare for the worst if it happens. Again, like you said, we don't have a crystal ball. So we don't know if it's going to be Armageddon or oh, it might be an aggressive slap on the wrist, right? So make sure you look at your overall situation, whether that's um, you if you can be able to keep a roof over your head, pay your bills, how much of your income you can go ahead and reinvest, et cetera. Look at that overall situation. Uh, make sure you have a plan for the worst and a plan for the medium uh, situation. But also look to see if you can take advantage of the opportunities that are going to mm. be presented too. You know, if we do go into uh, a further reduction in value for assets uh, across the various asset classes. Are you going to be in a position where you can comfortably acquire assets and ride up that equity gain for when they do appreciate in the future? You know, I'm sure another thing that you're seeing on social media is uh, the cliche quote of many millionaires are made in recessions. There are those who are prepared for recessions come out significantly ahead. And that is very much true. So if you do put that preparation in and acquire the right assets, this is a great opportunity to um, come out wealthy as well. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about um, what you just said there, right? Mm -hmm. And it's more about like the defense and then the offense, right? And you mentioned a couple things. So one was make sure that you can plan for the worst. Mm -hmm. But you started off by saying, let's look at your like necessities being like roof over your head, food, the things that you need, right? right? right. And to probably to you or uh, some of the uh, really experienced finance and economics people listening to this, they're like, yes, that's interest rates, that's rising costs of goods, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But what should people be looking at when they're looking at their budget to see the worst? Like, what does the worst look like? Yeah, so, you know, a a big popular effect that a lot of us are feeling right now is going to be their homes that they own. So the mortgages, 
the more and more the interest rates increase, if you're in a variable mortgage, that payment is going to continue to go up. So, you know, you have to essentially do a sensitivity analysis or on your own. Yeah. Or yeah. kind of stress your test yourself. Okay. If your interest rate goes up another 2%, what's that payment going to look like? If it goes up another 4%, what's that payment going to look like? I don't I have a crystal ball, so I don't know what, where it will be. They may be almost done increasing it. They may have some a lot more increases in mind. But just plan for those worst-case scenarios if it were to happen to right. see, okay, can I continue to afford this? Same thing with the other necessities, utilities, um, food costs, gasoline, things like that. If you were to see an increase in those prices, what uh, uh, what would that look like for your personal financial situation? Can you com- continue to afford it comfortably? And the biggest takeaway to then move into offense is after all those payments, how much do you have to play offense? Do you have a lot of extra disposable income available to you that you can go ahead and then utilize to acquire assets? And some people and might not. Mm-hmm. So they have to go into defense mode for yep. the time being. Right. And for the people that do still go, okay, if interest rates go up to 8%, if my hydro and electrical goes up uh, another 100, 200 bucks a month, if if gas prices are going to cost me an extra 200, I'm still good. Yeah. What are some asset classes or areas that people can be looking to, to take offense during this period of time? Yeah. So I think the, you know, the very popular one that is a low barrier to entry, which many individuals typically tend to lean to would be the stocks and equities. You know, we've already seen quite a correction in those and mm-hmm. there's still many solid companies who are just as good as they were fundamentally pre the correction uh, that have dropped in value. So, you know, finding some of those good stocks and investing your money in them can be a, a very easy thing for individuals to do and put their money into. Uh, you know, then you have someone that's doing what I do, which is real estate, which takes a lot more capital. And, you know, with these interest rates now, the, the loans that you're going to be getting are reduced. But again, if you can afford to purchase them and get good properties, I would go ahead and uh, invest in real estate as well. Because you might be able to take advantage of some people that are fire sailing because the interest rates have gone past their affordability. Mm-hmm. And you could be able to get in there and get something on a discount. Right. So that that is one of the opportunities that are, are definitely present with real estate, You know, especially some of the individuals who may have over leveraged themselves are, are forced to fire sale, which is unfortunate. But again, that's why people say millionaires are made in recessions because it's usually a reduced asset sale, which these people are purchasing during the recession. Unfortunate for them, but fortunate for some others. Yeah. It's a, it's actually interesting to see because obviously you don't want to see something happen in like 2008 where there's mass vacancies or like repos of like houses mm-hmm. and things like that. Right. So I'm, I'm fearful of that happening because over the last seven to 10 years is I've, I've been working with clients yeah. that, People have been really aggressively buying houses, yeah. hoping that they would just take care of themselves through like rent and everything. Right, right. And I'm actually seeing a lot right now through the people that I work with that they're not hitting their, like their renters are not hitting their mortgage rates or carrying costs. Right, and they're actually right. now having to put money into their properties. Yeah, for sure. Do you have any advice for those kinds of people? Yeah. So, you know, if, depending on the situation that uh, they've gotten themselves into, uh, my best advice would be find a way to hold the properties. Again, you know, real estate 
even though it's a cyclical market, right? You will have times where there's downturns and the prices will decrease and you'll be in a situation like this. But if you can hold that property for the long term, not only will you make your money back on that purchase, but it will continue to appreciate and give you an ROI. Now, what means you can do in order to make that happen, it can vary. So either find a way to get more disposable income from whether it's your job or your active business and be able to service the debt on that property or look at alternative strategies depending on the asset you have. So, you know, if you have a single family house with an unfinished basement, you know, may, mm. you may have to come up with that capital required to renovate that basement, put another tenant in there and reduce the burn. That's true. I like that. Good idea. Now, I also wanted to go back to like um, a lot of people. Let's say you were making $100,000 in 2018. Mm-hmm. That's not worth $100,000 right now, right? So, and progressively it's getting away at you. So do you have any, you don't, you don't work for somebody, but you have people that work with you. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have any advice for like, if you're not getting a raise up to inflation nowadays, you Mm -hmm. have to find some way to make that happen, right? Right. right. Why don't you talk to me a little bit about that or what you're seeing? Yeah, what what I've been seeing and kind of what I didn't execute myself back uh, in my career, but Mm -hmm. once I was at the tail end of it, if I can go back, this is something I would do, is funny enough, don't stick in one place too long, depending on the the role you're in and the skill set that you offer. So for example, for accountants, you know, it's very much we're taught, okay, you come up at a certain firm. If you want, you can continue to work at that firm after you've received your designation and climb your way up to partner, which not right. very many people do. They go ahead and leave and go to an in, what we call the industry, which is legitimate businesses and work in their finance department. And, you know, the typical career would then be stay at that company, continue to climb the ranks. Eventually you get promoted. Uh, they may have changed jobs one or two times throughout, but that's pretty much it, right? Mm-hmm. Very stable in that sense. But, you know, I'm seeing uh, that if you, can, if you apply and go to a different role every two or maybe three years, especially as you level up, in your skill set and the experience that you have, another company is typically willing to pay you more for that skill set. So instead of essentially what I'm trying to say is instead of waiting for the raise or the promotion at the certain company, if you it seems like it's going to be a while before you get it, maybe transitioning to another role typically comes with a significant. I, I I agree. Usually mm-hmm. that happens, right? But like mm-hmm. as someone who employs people, mm-hmm. if I see someone jumping around every two to three years, right. red flag. Right, right. Fair enough. Right. But at the very least, you could apply to other roles mm-hmm. and leverage that to be like, this is market standard. I'd get this at another company. So your 5% raise this year isn't going to cut it. Right, right. And essentially negotiate with them that way. And you could at yeah, least stay there. another tactic right? as well. But the whole jumping around every two to three years, yeah. I, I know some industries, especially in like marketing mm-hmm. and accounting and in tech, right. that's like a standard that right. people do. Right, right. But for me, I, I've done it. In the last like year, we've hired like six people. Mm-hmm. And during the interview process, if I saw someone was staying for two years, yeah. I wouldn't fine. even interview them. Fair. Because I'm like, that's not loyalty. And a lot of companies, a lot of people are undervaluing the value of loyalty mm-hmm. nowadays. Or maybe they're coming around and realizing how like valuable that is. Right. I guess for you know, for me, that answer comes from being an accountant and you know, the skill set is very standardized in a sense. So, you know, think of accounting as a language like, you know, if you can speak Spanish 
very well, then, you know, you can do this job very well. So you can always find another person who does it to a good extent and then it's on you to get the soft skills and et cetera that right. makes you great. So I think in that industry it was a lot more acceptable and less of a red flag per se, but I do, I do. You do have to consider both though, because it is the case that if you do jump to another company, it's usually a much more significant pay bump, mm-hmm. right? right? But someone that I know actually he got a significant pay bump. He was making like 120, 120K as a, as a software engineer. Right. And he got offered 180 to go to another company. Wow. And I was like, good for you, man. He's like, yeah, I'm starting in two weeks, da, da, da. I met with him three weeks later and he was like, my company offered me the exact same amount to stay. And I was like, and, and, he's, and he stayed. Wow. Right? That's... So he was an example of someone who felt undervalued. Right. His employer was probably undervaluing him, mm-hmm. got a job offer somewhere else, used that right. to leverage and wanted to stay. Right. That's, that's amazing. I guess sometimes it takes you willing to leave for them to recognize that value. Agreed. Agreed. Before we jump into real estate, mm-hmm. okay, I want to talk about a question that I got recently on Instagram. Okay. Um, so a young person on social media was asking me, you know, they're in their mid twenties. Uh, and they said, can you share a few companies that you believe are significantly undervalued and worth at looking at during this time? Mm-hmm. How do you answer that question? Cause I'm sure as an accountant, people are asking you for the latest hot thing to invest in right now. Should I invest in London? Should I invest in the Toronto condos is, uh, you know, a certain, uh, industry, more hot than others? How do you answer that yeah, question? Yeah, like I guess the tricky part with this is people are always expecting a simple answer where, you know, name what's the capital of this city and you just have the exact finite answer to it. But this, when it comes to investing, it's one of those things where there's so many variables that can affect the answer. Um, your ability to finance it or your investor appetite, your personal capital that you have available, these are all factors that are important how long you can sit without seeing a return how Mm -hmm. patient can you be do you need a dividend yielded every month do you need an interest payment coming in every month like you know there's so many different variables to answer this question but specifically with this um you know when it comes to undervalued companies and you know people seeking my advice on that the accountant answer or you know usually the financial advice advisor answer is usually based on uh, looking at numbers, you know, looking at the different uh, PE ratios that are available for it, debt to asset ratios, and very what I would call technical a- analysis, right? Discounted cash flows, et cetera. I personally haven't done any of that for equities currently based on the market. I'm usually using more of the approach of what are companies that I have researched and I know are have a solid business model, I see future growth potential for. And in this current climate, I know I, w- I would go as far as saying everything's kind of on fire sale right now, mm-hmm. just given the overall steady state of the market. So what I would f- advise this individual to do is look at companies that do have a solid business model, have seen great growth, and based on uh, their traction so far, are going to continue to have good growth, but are just hurting right now because of the current market climate buy the stock and hold it for the long term, right? So an example would be something like Meta, which, uh, you know, formerly Facebook, doing big things, investing a lot of money into future technology and uh, big changes in the future. They're getting hammered right now because of the current market climate. You know, they had a few bad earnings calls and things like that. But 
the overall vision for the future, I see it being very positive. So that's something I would just buy, hold, and forget about for for the future. Now, going it. back to what I initially said, it depends on your circumstance. Let's say you only have $10,000 available and you need to you know, utilize that $10,000 to essentially roll into another project or grow it as fast as possible to, uh, to build your wealth. You may not be able to just put all of your capital in that one thing and forget about it for the long term um, if, that what, if that is what your goal is. So, you know, that capital allocation may not work out for you. There may be other things that may yield a quicker return or but require more active involvement. So based on your appetite and what you're trying to do, I would uh, act accordingly. So it depends. I love that. Mm-hmm. And that's true. Too many people think that it's like, oh, this is the thing that you have to do. Yeah. I like that analogy of the capital of a country. Mm-hmm. Uh, a mentor of mine, when I started in financial advising at the bank, he used to always use this analogy called TRIO, T-R-I-O. Mm-hmm. And it stood for time horizon, risk tolerance, and investment objective. Mm. And when it comes to time horizon is, are you looking to buy a property in two years? Because you might not have the ability to invest in something too illiquid or too volatile, right? Or do you have 20 years where you could invest in a real estate property? It's fairly illiquid, but you can wait that out to get the ultimate rate of return compounded with the leverage effect, right? right? Risk tolerance, right? Are you a older, risk-adverse nonna, like my grandmother, right? You're probably not going to be investing in meta. You know what I mean? Right. Um, Or are you younger, you understand the ups and downs of the equity market, or you do understand real estate, and therefore you can take on a little bit more risk. And in investing, risk is really standard deviation or volatility. It's not like risk at the casino, Mm. Right, where it's like, oh, I'm betting 100 to either make 100 or lose 100. It's more about like, can you stomach the ups and downs? Can you stomach interest rate risk, macroeconomic risk, um, like local municipality risk, for example, for like real estate? Um, So that takes into account as well. And then investment objective. Mm -hmm. So like, is your investment objective, like you said, to build uh, passive income through interest and dividends? Or is it to maximize capital appreciation over the long run? Yeah. And if you could answer three, all three of those questions, questions, time horizon, uh, risk tolerance, and investment objective, TRIO, then you could actually make a more accurate investment decision on like what is the best investment for you. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I've been seeing a lot online is the, uh, there's this guy, what's his name? The sales guy that we always like uh, talk about, Alex Hermosi. Okay, are you familiar with yeah, Alex Hermosi? Acquisition.com. Yeah, exactly. And he's been uh, pumping this concept out called the SNME 500. Or have you seen this one or no? No, I haven't seen that one. So it's like the S, don't invest in the S&P 500, invest in the SNME 500, which is if you have a thousand to $10,000 of investment, like money that you can invest Mm -hmm. in, people come and say, hey, Anthony, what should I invest in? Right. And I'm like, well, first off, are you at your highest income earning potential? Well, no, I could probably make more money. Then instead of investing in the stock market at a 10% best case scenario rate of return on $10,000 is only $1,000 a year, yeah. right? Why not take that $10,000 and invest it in yourself? Right. Sales courses, persuasion courses, technical literacy courses, uh, more academic or vocational courses, right? And you could actually, with $10,000, probably increase your income $10,000 a year. Yeah. Right, that's a one hundred percent rate of return per year. 
by investing in the S&Me 500 versus the S&P 500. Yeah, also a different approach that you could take when looking to invest your money. Thoughts on that? For sure. No, I've, I've seen a lot of, um, I want to say influencers, uh, kind of preach the same thing like Grant Cardone, Bradley, right. et cetera. And no, I do agree. As long as you invest it in the right thing and that earning potential or the skill you develop on from that can yield you a much better return than what the uh, investment can make. It's kind of like, you know, you teach the fisherman how to fish. He'll, he'll fish for life versus... For sure. The other, uh, you know, just put in the money and you'll give you a good return, but the potential is less. Couldn't agree more. Um, I actually wanted to ask you now that we're on this topic, mm-hmm. best investment that you ever made in yourself, most influential, best investment, however you want to tackle it and right, why. Right, I think for me, it wouldn't, it would, it, to be honest, it wasn't a monetary investment. It was really investments in uh, relationships. So I don't know if that counts as an I investment think it counts. in myself, but you know, investing time in learn in learning how to network, how to develop relationships, and then utilizing those skills to you know, connect with like-minded individuals, keeping an open mind and see where those relationships take me. That's interesting that you say that because I was going to say best investment that I've ever made was I spent 1500 US dollars, mm-hmm. okay, on, are you familiar with Ty Lopez? Yeah, yeah. Okay, he's pretty sleazy, not going to lie, yeah. all right? He's, like, pretty well known to be sleazy on the internet. Yeah. Um, but he came out with this course. It was called Social Media Marketing Agency, mm. okay? And I spent, I remember $1,500 was so expensive to me back then. I was, like, probably 26, 25, and I was like, oh, 1500 bucks. Like, I could really pop bottles at the club <laughs> with that, right, or whatever. And so I, it was fifteen hundred US. So I always remember I was like, oh, US that, too. That's so expensive. Yeah, that extra thirty percent. That extra thirty percent, right? So I, so I bought it when I was twenty six years old, and uh, so I took the course. It was all about like how to structure social media as a service offering, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then a year later, I got two clients running their social media. It was in the summer of twenty seventeen. Okay, and then three months later, in October. I started King Street Media because of it. And uh, King Street Media just celebrated its five-year anniversary yesterday. Wow. October 27th, 2017, I, I incorporated. Yeah. And uh, last month, or last, uh, last uh, yesterday, we celebrated our five-year anniversary. We're like 13, 15 people strong. Uh, it's Amazing. like a legitimate business right now. We, uh, like we do over a million dollars a year of revenue. And... That's pretty fucking crazy to yeah, me. Yeah, that's amazing. That off Congrats. That $1,500 investment in some sleazy guy's course online in yeah. 2016 led to kind of where we are right now. Because I don't know if I'd be doing this if uh, if I didn't do that. Yeah, right? that's amazing, man. Yeah, it, but, but back to what you were saying before about relationships as well is that although that was a really good you know ROI investment, mm-hmm. some of the best investments that I made were the ones that were just my time, which was like, hey, I'll work for you for free mm-hmm. to like people that I wanted to be my mentors. Right. That led to so many doors opening. Like some of the best mentors I have right now started with, hey, what do you got that you need done? I'll do it for free. Right. How right. could you say no to that? Yeah. Right? And then I did it for free value. and it either turned into a paid opportunity or introductions or business ventures. And I really think there's some 
There's a zeitgeist right now happening on social media where pay me for what I'm worth. But the concept of offering to do something for free, proving your value, and then getting compensated for it is really undervalued right now in society. Yeah, for sure. Uh, You know, going back to, for me, the reason I went with relationships as my best investment is, you know, there was a couple very key relationships that uh, that I developed, which allowed me to get exactly where I am today. Like if I hadn't met those people and, um, you know, built relationships with them, started spitballing ideas, et cetera, there wouldn't be foundation capital today. Right, because didn't right. you meet those guys through uh, Cash Flow Tribe, was it called? or? Uh, no, no, not actually. They, that was a different organization that yeah. I think one of my partners was uh, he knew one of the owners of it, but we were never a part of How that How did you meet them? Then? Who are so the people for who was a part of one foundation? Of them, so the foundation foundation capital is comprised of myself, my partner Mitt, uh, Perpanigam, and Jeffrey Weibo, right. uh, based out of London, Ontario. So, you know, I initially met Mitt in high school, and, uh, you know, we were we were de- good friends. High school, in, in really? High school. I thought it was university and yeah. accounting. You guys so, both took accounting together afterwards, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we had, we, we, we knew each other in high school. We weren't super close friends at the time, but it was in university. We started to develop that relationship, and, you know, we went on to work at PwC together, so furthered the relationship there. And, uh, you know, started to discuss business ideas, ways to make money and grow our wealth and really kind of started partnering on a lot of different ventures, some that worked out, some that didn't. And then uh, along the road, Mitt actually met Jeff out in London when he was there for some audit work when he was working at a firm at the time. And, uh, you know, started to grow that relationship and over time again realized he was another like-minded individual. The three of us connected continued to invest time into the relationship, but also uh, into potential projects and uh, ways to grow our wealth. And over time, that that investment has really scaled and I'd say. paid dividends. You know what I mean? So I would say. That's probably one of the best decisions I've made. I love that. Um, Valentina, they say that whoever... Does is producer of the podcast becomes a wise investor within six months because you're forced to listen to this absolute wise facts being dropped. Hey, what's been your biggest takeaway so far? The S and Me 500. The S and Me 500. We're gonna run that as a micro piece of content for sure. AJ Fish. Okay, so let's move on to real estate because we are coming up on like 20 minutes left here. Sure. So I love watching your Instagram posts. You offer some really informative content. And like you've been sticking on that consistent for how long has it been now? Like two years? Uh, Yeah, I think so. I think so. It's been... uh... It's, it's kind of been a blur the last two years, but say, uh, yeah, yeah I, I feel like I have been doing it for a while now. Okay, so um, you recently spoke about multifamily investing on one of your posts, mm-hmm. and I know you're really big on that now. I like it because it diversifies uh, risks yep. to a certain degree. Um, for people trying to get started in, in, in investing in real estate, you can start there, but then moving their way up the chain mm-hmm. to multifamily. Right. Um, how exactly does that work? Can you define it first for us? Tell us a little bit about it yeah, for and sure. then move into like the details. Yeah, definitely. So maybe let's start off by saying, talking about what the key differences between multifamily investing would be and just, you know, regular residential investing. So 
The biggest thing is the way the properties are valued. So if you were to go out and purchase a condo or a single family home, duplex, triplex, et cetera, typically the value is going to be based on what a comparable property sold for on the street. Right. That's also the reason why we're seeing a lot of those properties dipping in prices right now while multifamilies are staying strong. Oh, really? And we'll get into that hmm. shortly. So, you know, you own this house, it's on this street, it has this many bedrooms, it has this many washrooms, it's worth this price. In February, but now just because a few of them have sold at a much lower price, yours is now worth the lower price as well, purely comparable. Multifamily, on the other hand, is based on the net operating income of the asset. So it's similar to a business in a sense, right? Businesses are typically valued on, you know, uh, X amount of times what the revenue is worth or what the net income, uh, what the gross profit is worth. Same thing with multifamily. If your asset can bring in this much net income and given the cap rate for the the location of the building, it is going to be valued at this price. So another difference, let's go back to the regular residential properties. How do they appreciate and val- uh, value? Again, comparable approach. So as time goes and people are paying more for that type of property, the value of that property has now gone up. Mm-hmm. Multifamily to an extent will inherently have a similar increase as well. But again, the main driving factor is the net operating income has gone up. So I'll give you a real life example of one of the projects that we were currently working on. We picked up a 29 unit building in St. Thomas, Ontario. We purchased it at $2.675 million. Oh, that's a big number to a lot of people. Right, right. But so again, we'll go into how that works. But so we purchased it at that price. We went in and we were able to get 14 out of the 29 units renovated, make them look like Toronto-style condos, put ensuite laundry in there, add a lot of value to these units, and now we're renting them out at the top market rent. So, you know, one of these units that previously would have went for like 600 bucks is now going for 1,700 bucks. Wow. Right? And you do that for 14 of the units, had the building revalued recently to refinance it, and it appraised at 5.5 million in about 16 months, right? That being said, you know, we have... uh, system in place plus a little bit of luck to get 14 units done in that short amount of time usually it can take anywhere up to five years six years you just never know but so you see the impact there we didn't wait for the markets to slowly appreciate that value it's like okay the income that this thing brings is significantly higher now so therefore it's worth approximately three million but bucks definitely more. that was not passive that like you no. guys must have put in time. No, we have into a team. That. We have systems. We have a lot of staff members involved in this operation to be able to accomplish something like that in uh, in the timelines that we try to set. So definitely not for everybody, as it's like buying a business. Yes, and then yes. You've uh, learned, which I'd love to know more about how you learned how to do this. Mm-hmm. But you've learned how to operate this kind of multifamily complex to be more value because of your. Input. Yeah, exactly. You know, the term we summarize it as is forced appreciation. So you're forcing the appreciation of the asset by driving up its uh, income potential. So one, the 2.7 mil, can you tell me a little bit about how that deal structured? Mm-hmm. And then also, how did you learn to do this? Yeah, so uh, in terms of how this deal structures, so this one's solely owned. Tell me how you learn how to do this first. So initially, the concept is very similar to doing it with regular rentals. Um you know, you purchase a property, you fix it up usually, and you rent it at a higher rent amount. And again, based on comparables, it's usually goes up in value. Excuse me. 
how we learned to do this is again, okay, or I was saying, instead of doing it for so many different properties in different places, why don't we just do this under one roof? First thing was to understand the valuation. So compare uh, comparable approach versus net operating income approach. Right. Lots of content on YouTube about this and you, you can Great. you can really learn about how the values you even have guys from like Colliers and commercial places just breaking out how those valuations are done. The other things that were associated with this, Anthony, you, it, the learning came as part of the project. So our first ever project was a 17-unit building in London, Ontario. We were kind of nervous about doing it. We had never done one before, had uh, no idea what kind of headaches and stuff that we may run into, but it was kind of taking that leap of faith. We understood what kind of income potential the asset could have, what it currently had, what kind of finance we would need in place in order to make this happen, and just made the jump and and went for it. So you know, I don't have a magical resource library or anything you like that. Trial and failure there. Exactly. Right? Right. I remember calling you one day. It was like a Monday or a Sunday, and you were like, "Oh, I'm on my I'm on a drive right now. Pipe burst or something like that, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so exactly. So that's see, that's something. That's a call that would have happened earlier on because you know we didn't have the proper systems in place, the right people in place to treat this as a business at the time that you know that was just three people purchasing an apartment building and you know we kind of manage it and figure out on our own now you know to get the operation to where we are today you have to treat it like a real business you have to have full-time property managers that work exclusively for your company that are attending your units at all times you got to have contractors that work for your company that are able to go in and not only do maintenance for the units but also do renovations right. and service the uh, the volume that you're producing right right love that okay cool so you wouldn't uh, advise it to anybody what if some other what if someone who's like doesn't want to do all the operations, mm -hmm. wants to get into multifamily, right. what would you recommend? I would recommend them partnering with Foundation Capital because uh, you know we offer a model where the investors will be able to invest the funds that are required to purchase the building, uh, renovate the building, and the holding costs associated with it. In exchange, we'll bring them a good building deal. We'll manage, it, make, manage the entire project, make sure it turns around in the timeline that we have agreed to. And that investor gets a significant yield of the profits. Where can someone find out more about that? Yeah, so you can reach out to us at foundationcapital.ca or uh, contact me on Instagram. And we have an application form for joint venture partners. Love it. Thank you. Okay, so uh, referring to one of your other recent posts, um, you said it's a better idea avoiding investing in the GTA condos mm -hmm. and buy Toronto Century homes instead. Can you explain your thought process on this? Define for us what a Century home is uh, yeah. and like why you said that? Yeah, for sure. So to give some context, uh, GTA condos, by no means am I saying, is it a bad investment? I actually own a GTA condo as well. And it is typically a way for many investors to enter the market, uh, very passive, at, depending on the tenants that you put in, you know, you don't need a lot of active management and it'll do its thing and appreciate over time. The goal behind this post was to say, if, if you actually want to build wealth faster and actually have forced appreciation and are willing to put in the work versus you know having something that's more passive then buy a Toronto Century home because there's a lot more money to be made and of course that's going to come with a lot more work you know you have to go ahead and do some renovations maybe make some structural changes etc but when it's all said and done 
that project's going to yield you a lot more money versus waiting for the condo to just naturally appreciate, right? So, so another instance of this forced appreciation. Is, I'm guessing a Toronto Century home is like mm-hmm. a home over 100 years yeah, old. Yeah, exactly. probably like old, broken down. You go in there, rejuvenate it, gave it a facelift. Yes, exactly. And you also, a lot of them are single family homes, but you get it converted into a home that could have multiple units. So instead mm. of one tenant in there, you can have three different tenants. So this must be a competitive space though. Like other people must be doing this, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have any tips for people what to look for? Yeah. So, uh, are I'll, there realtors that specialize in this it's kind funny of thing? Cause before I, I put the post up, it was more difficult to, you know, get the permitting and zoning and things like that done for something of this nature. Hmm. It still is very intricate, but you know, the city's become a lot more faster at doing it and getting it approved. But yeah, I would work with a, a realtor that knows the the particular types of homes that would work well for this, are familiar with the layouts because a lot of these Toronto Century homes have a very similar layout depending on where it's built. So someone who has experience doing this would be able to give you a little bit more advice on finding the right one to uh, take on a project like that. Love it. Um, and before investing in real estate, this is more like 101 knowledge here if we mm-hmm. can for a second. Um, what does someone need to have cash wise built up before making that first real estate investment? This is for the first real estate investors. Yeah. Um, what kind of, like, what kind of ammunition do they need? What kind of vault do they need in order to make that first plunge? Right. So typically I would have at least 20% of the purchase price. If you are going the investment route, you can qualify with five or 10%, but that's if you're going to be moving into the home. So 20% down plus whatever you think the renovation costs is going to be for the property. And I would also budget for the holding costs. So, you know, let's say you think this property is going to take six months to renovate. You know, you'd have six months worth of mortgage payments, property taxes, utilities, et cetera, to hold this property for six months. But I would strongly recommend taking it even further because these things always get delayed and potentially there's overruns and stuff like that. So I would even plan for whatever your renovation budget is, bump it up by 20%. And whatever you think your timeline is, bump like maybe be prepared to even go double. So then that way, you know, you don't get screwed in a situation where you run out of money and then have to liquidate it for pennies on the dollar. I love that. Great. Um, so uh, what cities are you looking at right now? Primarily, uh, we invest in London, Ontario, as well as Chatham, Ontario. Why? Because uh, the numbers work really well there. So the price that you can purchase these assets for... Uh, versus what their income potential is, there's such a big uh, discrepancy. So, for example, in Toronto, people just really want to live here. People just really want to live here. And, you know, of course, that commands a certain rent. But all of the sellers, based on that um, desire, are charging are trying to charge prices that are significantly more than what the building is worth based on its income. A lot because of like lifestyle and things like that, the glamour of living in Toronto. Right, and they factor in more appreciation because, you know, there's only so much Toronto real estate. Right, right. So they may be like, if appreciation, if the value is here, Mm -hmm. like at X, they they may be over appreciating it X plus something yeah yeah it's similar to like stocks in a sense where you know you have a company and you look at its financials and this thing's been losing money for five years but everybody's like oh shoot uber's public now it must be a sick company and then pump the stock price up 
way more than what it's really worth based on the technicals, right? That's kind of what happens. You hear that all, you Liberty Village uh, investors? <laughs> That's what's happening there. Um, okay, cool. So uh, just going to end off with two more questions. Mm-hmm. What does 2023 look like for PV? What makes them excited? Yeah, what so are you excited about 2023, for, the, for the future? I'm very much excited on uh, continuing to grow and scale Foundation Capital. We're, uh, we're currently in the process of actually getting it uh, turned into a true real estate fund where we can offer more investors access to the multifamily investments and uh, give them the opportunity to do it passively where you know we're doing the work and being the operators and they're having exposure to such a strong and favorable asset class without uh, having to be actively involved. I love that. You ever think you're going to go further than Ontario? Yeah, definitely. I know there's a lot of uh, opportunities in other places in Canada, but also the United States where the numbers work really well. I think we're going to continue to carve our piece of Ontario first uh, because the synergies just really work well with the systems and teams that we already have here. Mm -hmm. And then eventually go to build those same systems and teams out in those other regions as well. What's the North Star for you? Where are you trying to go? When's enough? Yeah, that's a that's a question I ask myself all the time. Um, you know, I do have maybe an assets under management goal that I've been kind of workshopping, but I really, for me, I think um, it's going to be a combination of getting the fund to a certain place and seeing how many lives and investors we can impact as well along that journey. Well, I'm one of your biggest fans, bro, so this is not going to be the last time. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. I'm switching it up and I'm going to be asking this question to everybody on the show this season. Mm -hmm. And it was one that I heard recently online and it really stuck with me. So I've been asking it to a lot of people, which is what's one piece of wisdom that you wish you learned a lot sooner? You know, what's one piece, I, I I don't know if this counts as wisdom, but one piece of knowledge that I wish I had much sooner that could change so many things would be understanding how to understanding how debt works and how you could use it is something that I the wisdom around that that I've essentially gained over time you know through the real estate game but also through being an accountant etc that understanding and ins and outs of how that works I wish I knew much sooner because if you knew how to, if you know how to use debt properly, you can scale your business or hustle or a, you know real estate investing, asset class investing, so much faster. And let me let me give you guys a real life example. You know, I left uh, my corporate job and started an accounting firm from scratch. You know, and attending networking events, um, uh, you know, shaking many hands in person, and slowly you, know, you get that first one or two clients, they refer you another few, and it's a very slow grind before you get to this one snowball that now has gotten itself some credibility and it goes so much faster, right? And, you know, some people that they can get to that period in three years and then scale it up for the next six, seven, eight, or some people might take them through four or five years. Some people start early and then just give up because it didn't work out. Now, if I go back, if I had to start again and I were going to take that accounting path and I know, understand how borrowing works and, and uh, the power of leverage, I would redo the whole thing. And actually, Anthony, you might know this, like from Naval's podcast as well, like, you know, you have people leverage and then you have capital leverage, right? Exactly. This, when I'm talking about debt here, I'm really nailing the capital leverage. So why would I go ahead and 
start an accounting firm again from scratch like that. Like organic. When I can go ahead and buy one and have the BDC lend me 90% of the purchase price. And now I'm buying a book of business that's already good to go, has some sort of systems in place, may come with staff members. And now I have to put in the work and figuring out how to operate this thing, how to manage it. And here's the best part. Let's say the book of business cost $600,000. I now just purchased $600,000 of revenue. But after I pay my staff members, after I make my interest and loan payments to the BDC, uh, that I'm now have a net 300k in my pocket, which I can use to either take a salary or reinvest into purchasing the next firm, and then the next firm, and then the next firm. Next thing you know, you have a two three million dollar gross revenue firm thanks to the power of leverage. Versus, imagine how long it's going to take me to shake hands and grind my way up to a three million dollar firm. I love that. I love that, and it's it's true. It's rephrasing it not as debt, mm-hmm. but capital leverage yep. or leverage. Right? right, and right. leveraging that capital to grow more exponentially. Most people are grown up being afraid of debt, mm-hmm. you know, because maybe that's a generational not, thing, a cultural yeah, thing. But yeah, very much a cultural wisely, thing. Wisely, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So it's a pleasure, man. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this week's episode of What They Did Not Teach You in School. PV, you're a gentleman and a scholar. Thank you for being on. Until next time.